say that uh, just feel so honored that your kids are here with us. Really, really do. All right. Hey, I want you to take your Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And we are going to do something I'm really excited about today. We're going to close this study on 1 Corinthians. We've been doing it for a long, long time. Can I get an amen out there? Okay. Yeah. All right. We're in the last few lines of this incredible letter that Paul wrote to the Christians in Corinth. And I want us to think about this. We're going to talk about something today. We're going to start off, I'm going to warn you, it's going to start off kind of heavy, all right? But it's going to get lighter as we go on and then toward the end. But I want you to stop and think about this with me for a moment. As we're going to read this passage from 1 Corinthians 16, I want you to stop and think about it in terms of uh, our nation, all right? In terms of the United States of America. You know, a lot of you are looking around right now going, man, what is wrong? You know, what has happened to our country? We only need to look to one of our great presidents for the answer. You know, if you go out here on Highway 207, by the way, not too far from the entrance to the Four Sixes Ranch, there's a historical marker out there, and it tells you that <clears throat> Teddy Roosevelt came to our area back in the early 1900s to go wolf hunting. All right. <laughs> How cool is that? And I just thought, I mean, I'm reading that plaque, I just thought, only Teddy Roosevelt would go wolf hunting, you know, in the Texas Panhandle. But it was wild and woolly here back in those days. But yeah, he was a... He was a boxer. Uh, he was a rancher. He was a big game hunter. He was a soldier. He was an explorer, a very prolific author, uh, naval commander, and a president. You know, one time he was running for president. He wrote a speech. He read, his handwritten is 50 pages long, and he stuck it in his coat pocket, and he also had in there a steel cigar box. And a man came up while he was working the crowd, talking to the crowd. A man came up with a small revolver, put it right there on his chest and pulled the trigger. The gun went through, I'm sorry, the bullet went through the steel cigar box and the 50 pages of paper, which was really 100 because it was folded over, and the bullet lodged in his chest. But it was, you know, there again, because of all the obstacles in the way, the bullet didn't go very deep into his chest. Well, everybody's freaked out. Like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? But this is Teddy Roosevelt. And so Roosevelt says, no, all these people have come to hear me give a speech. I'm going to give a speech. Like, no, you got to go to the hospital. No, I'm going to give a speech. And so he got up and he was so angry at all the lawlessness in America. He called it anarchy, by the way. His big foe in the early 1900s, what he called the anarchy which, by the way, is very similar to, you know, exactly 100 years later to what we're fighting in America today. But anyway, he went out and gave a 50-minute speech with a bullet in his chest. It's pretty incredible. And then they went and pulled it out a little bit later. And despite what revisionist historians will tell you, uh, Teddy Roosevelt was a very committed Christian. He attended the Presbyterian Church all of his life. He taught a Sunday school class for underprivileged children when he was a teenager. And he continued to do so in Boston when he was a student at Harvard. And while he was a student at Harvard, his father died, Teddy Roosevelt Sr., who was, by all accounts, an amazing man. He was devastated. Listen to what Teddy Roosevelt wrote in his diary. Nothing but my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ could have carried me through this trial and sorrow. Well, Roosevelt was a faithful church attender all of his life. He donated large sums of money to churches. In a 1917 interview, President Roosevelt was asked to offer his 10 reasons for going to church. I don't know why we don't ask presidents this question anymore. We should do that, okay? 
And I couldn't help but notice number one. Number one, in the actual world, a community where men have abandoned and scoffed at or ignored their religious needs is a community on the rapid downgrade. Wow. Now, I just want to tell you going into this that the primary target of our message today is the men in the audience today. But ladies, I want you to know that there's definitely an application for you here as well. But did you know that for the first time in our history, America's pews are now 60% female and 40% male? People are like, what's wrong with America? Men aren't in church. A shortage of men leads to church decline. Church decline leads to societal decline, cultural decline. And a shortage of churches leads to national decline. So it's very, very true. America needs men in church. But it's more true that men in America need the church. Because as the number of men in church dwindles, the condition of men in America has been in a rapid decline, just like Terry Roosevelt spoke of a moment ago. For 50 years, America has been systematically redefining what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, what it means to be married, what it means to be a parent, a father, a mother, etc., etc. And America's journey into a genderless society is having a devastating effect, but particularly upon men and boys. And we began this journey in the 1970s when we began saying that women don't need men and men don't need women. They can have each other, things like that. Simultaneously, the federal government swept in and began to replace fathers as the providers in so many families. And here we sit today in 2022. I Googled this the other day. How many genders are there in American society? There's 16. 16 genders. I grew up with two. In America today, girls are more likely than boys to get good grades, perform well on IQ tests, attend a prestigious college, go to graduate school. More women than men earn law degrees, go to medical school, buy homes, own cars, and drive cars. In America today, boys are more likely than girls to die of a drug overdose, become an alcoholic, become addicted to pornography, become addicted to opioids, drop out of school, go to jail, live with their parents, commit suicide, or commit mass murder. The church needs men. And men need the church. There has been so much talk in our culture these past 50 years. What's the role of women in church? I get asked this question all the time. What's the role of women in church? Why is nobody asking the question, what's the role of men in church? And that's kind of what Paul is doing here at the very end of 1 Corinthians. And so this is part two of what we started last week, a man and his church. See, time after time, all throughout our Bible, we see God speaking to men in particular. The message is always consistent. We read Paul here writing to the men of the church in Corinth, and he sounds like an Old Testament prophet when he says these things. He really does. Chapter 16, verses 10 through 18. He says, If Timothy comes, see to it he has nothing to fear while he is with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. And no one then should refuse to accept him, send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. I'm expecting him along with the brothers. And now about our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to go, with, to, the, go to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. Be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be men of courage, be strong, and do everything in love. You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. I urge you, brothers, 
to submit to such as these and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. And I was glad when Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus arrived, Achaicus arrived, because they have supplied what was lacking from you. For they refreshed my spirit and yours also. And such men deserve recognition. You know, back when I was younger, I always read the New American Standard Bible, and that translation there says, Be alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, and let all that you do be done in love. And so churches need men, but also men need church. We talked about this last week. Number one, what do churches need from their men is the courage to stand. Because true religion, we said last week, confronts earth with heaven. And what we talked about last week was Christian courage. Christian courage is the willingness to speak the truth in love despite the risk of objection or opposition or ostracism. And so the role of men in the church, first of all, is to be a a messenger for Christ in a world that's really gone mad and is really out of control. To be someone with the courage to speak the truth, but to do it well. To do it in a way with real skill. That's why, you know, Paul told Timothy, those who oppose you, instruct them gently that they might be basically let loose from the jaws of Satan. But number two is the humility to serve. The humility to serve. When I'm asked... What has changed in America from the time you were young? I kind of, you know, tease about it a little bit. Yeah, he was riding the back of pickups, you know, and you know, didn't have to wear a bicycle helmet, you know, stuff like that. But I got to thinking about it. When I honestly examined the national landscape, you know what has changed so much? Is that the nation that we love and live in is plagued by pride. I see it in our church leaders. This mountain of pride. These men who demand to be honored, to be exalted, to be showered with luxury and power. I see it in our political leaders on both sides of the aisle. This this belief that they're above the law, that they can do whatever they want to do. And I see it everywhere. But then in our public discourse, you know, I've never dreamed When I listen to podcasts and watch cable news, I never dreamed so much arrogance was even possible. And this nation cannot hold itself together as long as there is so much pride that's just infecting so much of the national character. And we're watching the results of it even as we speak. It's so important right now that we recapture what it means to be like Jesus a humble servant. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul wrote this. He said, think the way that Jesus Christ thought. He was like God in every way, but he gave up everything, even his place with God. He accepted the role of a servant appearing in human form. And during his life as a man, he humbled himself by being fully obedient to God, even when that caused his death, death on a cross. And so you look at verse 12 for a moment, where Paul brings up Apollos. He's like, I urged Apollos to go to Corinth and hang out with y'all and be there with y'all, but he refused to go. He's going to come later when he has the opportunity. That verse is so much more important than it might appear at first glance. Because, the, you know, Apollos, first of all, a tremendous speaker, very, very gifted man. He was passionate. He was intelligent. He was diligent. He was wise. 
In Acts chapter 18, uh, we are told a little bit about him. He was a native of Alexandria, Egypt. He came to Ephesus, and the Bible says he was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of scriptures, and he spoke with great fervor. All right, so he was a tremendous communicator, and the people of Corinth loved him. And they told Paul, hey, we heard Apollos is there with you in Ephesus. Tell him to come back to Corinth. And so Apollos was there with Paul as he's actually writing this letter. All right, he's in Ephesus, and I can imagine Apollos looking over his shoulder as he's writing the letter. In fact, it may be possible that Apollos actually wrote this letter. You know, the Apostle Paul's eyesight, we think, was so bad, he couldn't really write the letters, he could only sign them. It could be that Apollos actually was the one dictating or transcribing this letter while Paul dictated. And he would have been sickened to read what the letter said that he received from Corinth from the house of Chloe. 1 Corinthians 1.11 says, Some members of Chloe's household have told me about your quarrels. My dear brothers and sisters, some of you are saying, I am a follower of Paul. Others are saying, I follow Apollos, or I follow Peter, or I follow only Christ. What's happening in Corinth? There are divisions, there are factions. People are quarreling, claiming to follow separate leaders. And a faction arose in the Corinthian church with the watchword, I follow Apollos. And so there again, Apollos is reading this and he's hearing this, and it must have cut him to the heart. And Paul says, Apollos, I really, I urge you to go to Corinth. Try to straighten this mess out. Apollos says, no, I don't think it's God's will for me to go. I'm not going to go. You see, many people had this idea like the apostles in the early church were like generals, you know, sending the army of the Lord out to wherever they would go. And they would go at their beck and call, commanding Christians to go at their beck and call. But Paul does not command Apollos. He urges him. See, he has no authority over Apollos. And Apollos is free to tell Paul, I don't, I don't think it's God's will for me to go to Corinth. In several places, we're shown in the New Testament by Paul that he never lords it over anyone. He does not use his authority within the church to order anyone around or be the boss. 1 Thessalonians 2, great, great example. He says, as apostles of Christ, we, we could have used our authority over you, but instead we were very gentle with you like a nursing mother caring for her little children because we had such affection for you. We were happy to share not only God's good news with you, but even our own lives. And I would imagine there are many of us here today who could tell horror stories about church leaders hurting your life in the name of authority. Churches where pastors dress like kings, but the parishioners dress like paupers. Churches where people work and sacrifice past the point of burnout to make the pastor famous or make his vision a reality. Churches where anyone who dares question a pastor's authority or a decision, you're out of God's will. You're in rebellion to God. I've been in those conversations before. You see, men often long for an authority that God's word doesn't give them, but then they teach the word of God as if it does. And that kind of false teaching creates a false importance, a false honor, and it's in direct opposition 
to the character of Christ. In Luke chapter 22, the Bible tells us that a dispute occurred among the apostles about which one was the most important. And Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. They take authority over their subjects. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the leader should be like the servant. Who is more important, the one sitting at the table or the one serving? It is not the one sitting at the table, but I am like a servant among you. Now, I think it's so important for us to see this response from the Apostle Paul toward Apollos. Not a hint of pride. There's no maneuvering. There's no manipulating. And it's so critical to our relationships in our churches, in our marriages, in our parenting, in our homes, that we lay aside our pride. Why was the church at Corinth divided and quarreling and in cliques? Because of the sin of pride. See, Proverbs 13, 10 says, where there is strife, there is pride. Always. You know, Solomon didn't give a qualifier there. You know, <laughs> anytime there's an argument, anytime there's a quarrel, you know pride is present. Look at verse 15 and 16. He talks about the household of Stephanus. They've devoted themselves to the service of the saints. And he said, I urge you to submit to men like this is what he is saying. And everyone who labors in the church the way that they do. You see, Achaia was the region around Corinth, sort of like Borger is in the panhandle of Texas. You can see that up on the map. Now, when you look at this, the household of Stephanus were the first to believe the gospel. Paul came from Athens and for, you know, you know, in God's providence, he met this man named Stephanus. And he had a household. Now, a Roman household many times was a lot of people. Uh, there would have been obviously the family of Stephanus, but then his extended family, you know, mother, father, mother-in-law, father-in-law, then the children, and then the slaves, and many times the children of the slaves. It was also a huge economic enterprise. There would have been fields, there would have been orchards, there would have been animals. And they began donating their resources to the church that was budding in Corinth, this movement of God that was taking place in Corinth. And they devoted themselves to God's holy people, and they became the foundation for the very first Christian community in Achaia. And they committed to serving, and they served the body of Christ. And Paul says they worked hard. They worked hard. Because look at that word where he says labor. Submit to such as these and everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. That word labors, it's not just ordinary work. It means working to fatigue. All right. It means going dark. You know, when you work till you almost pass out. Okay, that's what he's talking about there. There's a very powerful play on words that Paul is using here. He's saying, put yourselves in the service of people who have dedicated themselves to serving you. Isn't that beautiful? Put yourselves in the service of people who have dedicated themselves to serving you. When we lay aside our rights, our rank, our status, what we feel we've earned or deserve in our churches, in our marriages, in our homes, we humbly serve. And then Romans 12, 10, look at this. 
Be devoted to one another in love and honor one another above yourselves. Seen all these beautiful kids up here earlier? I just, I was just thinking about this. Moms and dads, grandmothers, grandfathers, if you want your kids to thrive, ask God to bring humility into your home so that you can learn to honor one another. Be devoted to each other in brotherly love. Look at verse 17. He said, I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus arrived. They have supplied what was lacking from you, Corinthians, for they refreshed my spirit and yours also. You know what you want in your home? You want the spirit of the people in your home to be refreshed? How does that happen? Humility. Humility. You see, these three men came to Corinth seeking out Paul in Ephesus, and they brought him this letter, and the letter we call 1 Corinthians is his reply to that letter they brought. All right, they brought it back to Corinth. Now, Stephanus, as we already discussed, was the head of the household. Look at that name, Fortunatus. Fortunatus means good fortune. That was a personal name in Roman society that was always given to slaves. This man that I bought, he's my good fortune. And the word Achaicus, the name Achaicus, that was also the name of a slave because he was named after the region where he was enslaved, Achaicus. And if he ever ran away, people would know where he belonged. And Paul says, these three men, they have supplied what was lacking from you and they have refreshed my spirit. What was lacking from Corinth? What was lacking from Corinth was any semblance of love, of unity, of oneness that results from Christ-like humility. But see, these three men, Paul is trying to say, these three men are Christ-like men. They are humble servants. And being with them, Paul says, it has refreshed my soul. It has refreshed my soul. By the way, that word refreshed means they... They rested my spirit. They soothed my spirit. You see, hearing about the church at Corinth, about the, the quarreling and the cliques and the factions and the arguing, it was the exact opposite. That would have drained Paul. And I want to ask you to think about this. Does, does your presence refresh the people around you? I mean, we all have those people in our lives, don't we? You know, after, they, after you've been with them about five minutes, you're just tired because all you hear is just criticizing and complaining and bragging and boasting, you know, you know, about all the things that they've done, all the things their grandkids have done, their kids have done, and then complaining, criticizing all sorts of other people. And you're just, you know, you're just exhausted. And when they leave, you're like, oh, good, now I can rest, you know. And you can't be at rest in their presence. And I want you to think about that. In, in contrast to what Jesus said about himself. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, come to me all you are weary and burdened, I will give you what? Rest. I'm going I'm to refresh your soul. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am what? Gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest in my presence. Why? Because of his humility. See, when someone is humble as Jesus was, you can be at rest in their presence. You can be real. You can be authentic. And there's joy in that person's presence. 
and nothing will have as powerful an effect on your life and your relationships as humility does. And by the same token, the same thing is true. Pride has an incredibly powerful effect on your relationships as well in the opposite way. This is why in this letter, 1 Corinthians, when you go back to chapter 13, Paul said that pride and love are completely incompatible. 1 Corinthians 13, 4, love does not brag and it is not puffed up. By the way, that word puffed up literally means love is not swollen, all right? A swollen head. Most of your versions are going to say love is not proud, okay? And that's good. That's a good English translation. But in the original language, it's literally love is not swollen. You know, my mom, uh, I know I've mentioned this before, but it's just kind of where we're living right now. But my mom had a stroke a few weeks ago. And in the immediate days after her stroke, uh, we would try to talk with her and try to communicate with her. But she, she couldn't think at all. And, you know, it'd be like, you know, hey, mom, what color are your shoes? October. You know, just really, <laughs> I'm sorry, that was supposed to be funny. It's okay to laugh at that. It's all right. <laughs> you know, and uh, it, was just, it was just really something. It's like, man, what's going on? And she could not think straight. And so, we, you know, we got the doctors there and I see you over in Amarillo, like, man, what's happening? And they just said, you're, you know, they told me, said, your mom's brain right now is just very swollen and it's, it's pressed up against the inside of her cranium. And until that swelling goes down, she won't be able to think straight. And I just want to report to you, like every day she gets better. We go, she's in Borger now, and it's, the swelling has gone down tremendously because she's talking. She's, she's doing great, having great conversations now. And every day, Melanie and I and my sister, we're always like, I can't believe the progress that she's making. What's happening? The swelling in her head is going down. Pride is like swelling in the brain. It really is. It swells the mind with a sense of self-importance. And the proud man, he credits himself for his advantages in life. And he buys into the myth of the self-made man. And he feels superior to others. And he's constantly plagued by this feeling that he deserves more, that he's earned more. And he doesn't realize that his brain is damaged. It's swollen. And when he speaks, he isn't making any sense. Okay? He doesn't understand that pride and arrogance and vanity that it's going to threaten all of his relationships. And see, Paul knew that the arrogance in Corinth, the pride in Corinth, it was a disaster in waiting. And the same is always true for a marriage, for a family, for a church. Where there is pride, destruction will follow. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. That's why Paul says, such men, men like these, they deserve recognition. Actually, the NIV kind of tones down the original language. Paul says, acknowledge men like this, who are humble servants in the character of Jesus. Men like Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, these are the kind of men that I urge you to be, Paul is saying. And something so remarkable about Paul's statement here is that Two out of the three men that he's holding up as examples for everybody in the church are slaves. You see, the the ground is level at the foot of the cross, isn't it? And no one outranks any other. 
In Romans chapter 12, Paul wrote this. He said, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. So for all of us here, men, women, students, everybody, how do you think of yourself? Do you think of yourself with sober judgment? Now, humility is not thinking little of yourself. Humility is not being a pushover. That's not, what it, that's not the biblical definition of humility at all. Like I was listening the other day to a guy, he said a, a young man was getting married and his father pulled him aside. And he said, this is an important day, son. And I want to give you some advice that my father gave me. From this day forward, you're going to marry that beautiful bride and you have to ask yourself, do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? <laughs> he, said, he said, son, I'm a happy man, but I have been right in 32 years. <laughs> you see, I want you to look at this chart for a moment. See, insecurity is when you think too little of yourself. All right. Pride is thinking too much of yourself. But humility is not thinking of yourself at all. All right. Let me say that again. Insecurity is thinking too little of yourself. Pride, thinking too much of yourself. But humility is not thinking of yourself at all. You see, insecurity and pride seem very different, but in reality, they're very similar because there's an obsession with yourself. You're constantly thinking about yourself and what other people think about you. And so we've got to really ask ourselves this question, how sober is my judgment? You know, am I healthy? Am I well? Is my head swollen? Am I brain damaged? And he's asked these questions. Does it humble you to be a member of the body of Christ? Does it fill you with a sense of awe that God has saved you and purchased you and washed you clean, filled you with his spirit, joined you to his body, and put you on a collision course with eternal glory in heaven? And what does humility even look like? I want to conclude with this. There's an old saying that goes like this. If you're pretty certain that you're humble, you're not. <laughs> okay. The eight undeniable evidences of a humble heart. Here we go. Number one, the humble heart, the humble in heart have a sincere dependence on God's grace. You know, John 15 makes it clear, apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. Number two, the humble in heart always put the welfare of others ahead of their own. Philippians 2, Paul said, with humility in mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Number three, the humble in heart are not prone to gossip. Why is that? Gossip is putting others down to lift yourself up, and gossip is always rooted in jealousy, envy, and pride. And I just got to tell you, the, the entire 24-hour-a-day news cycle on all networks is just built around gossip, which is rooted in pride, and it's just a cancer in America. Number four, the humble in heart find joy when others succeed. In 1 Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul says, when one part of the body is honored, all the parts are glad. See, when you're humble, you don't mind who gets the credit as long as God gets the glory. Next, the humble in heart readily accept the role of a servant. Jesus said in Mark chapter 9, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. 
Number six, the humble in heart freely admit when they are wrong. You, know, you can make progress or you can make excuses, but you can't do both. Isn't that so true? People who are proud can't make progress because they can't admit mistakes and learn from them. Number seven, it's a tough one. The humble in heart, they do the hard work of forgiveness. Forgiveness is not easy. It doesn't come fast. It doesn't come quickly. It's hard, long work. But they are mindful of the gospel. And those who have received much give much. And they forgive because they believe they've been much forgiven. And the last one is this, is that the humble in heart have a tender conscience. You know, Isaiah 66 tells us that a humble person has a contrite heart and that he trembles at God's word. You know, I was thinking about that even this morning as we were singing over here a little while ago. I hope I never come to a place that my heart doesn't tremble at the word of God. I hope that I never come to that place. I always want to have a humble heart. You know, I don't know about you, but I have a hard time doing two things at once. Like, I can, I, some of y'all can do this. Like, y'all can be on, an, you know, on, a, on the telephone and type an email. I cannot do something like that. I, I can't. I, I've got to be focused on one thing at a time. I'm very, very myopic. myopic. But, but God isn't like that. Not at all. We're going to conclude with 1 Peter 5, 5. Peter says, All of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility for... God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You see, the humble get the help, okay? The humble get the help, all right? And the proud get the push. They get pushed away. God resists the proud. And I really think about that. God is able to do two things at once, all right? He resists the proud, and he gives grace to the humble. It's the humble who get the help, always, always. Let's bow our heads together this morning. If we could just bow our heads and close our eyes and just pause for a minute to think about this. So, so critical, this whole issue of humility. Being a humble servant, the humility to serve others is such a powerful force in our lives. And to go before the Lord and just ask the Lord for humility of heart, that, 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 Humility, ability to be able to honor others above yourself, to put the needs of others ahead of your own. Husbands and wives, how powerful that is in a marriage for all of us. How incredibly powerful that is in the life of a church to honor one another to serve one another and do it all in humility. And so I just want to ask you to go before the Lord this morning and ask the Lord to give you that sober judgment. Sober judgment. Just ask the Lord this morning to help you to see yourself in light of the gospel that God has saved your soul and set you on a course for heaven, joined you to his body, given you the mind of Christ, done all these things for you, and did, did all this so you would depend upon him for everything. And if there's an area of your life you saw in those eight evidences of humble heart and you realize, man, I'm not there, ask the Lord to work humility into your heart and mind in that area of your life today. So let's just be quiet 
as a church body, as families, let's just go before the Lord, ask for humility today. Ask for humility. Lord, I just come before you today. Lord, I know you can see the mountain of pride in my life. And Father, I just want to ask your forgiveness for all those times that I've hurt so many other people, Father, because I'm such a proud man. And so, Father, I just want to come before you today and ask you, Lord, just to work your humility into my heart and my mind. And Father, I just pray that for every man here in this place, Father, that you would just work into us, into the deepest places of our, of our broken hearts, Father, a genuine humility. And Father, just give us eyes to see, first of all, ourselves with sober judgment. But then, Father, also open our eyes to see the people around us, Father, who need to be honored, Father, because it just would bless them to the uttermost, who need to be served, Father, because they just need so much right now. And so, Father, just pray that you work a humble heart in all of us here today. And Father, I pray for humility, especially in our homes. Father, because we want our homes to bring you much glory. We want our children to thrive. And so, Lord, we ask for humility in our homes and here in this church. And Lord, we do humbly come before you this morning as well. Just asking, Father, to work on behalf of our students. Lord, just leading us to our student minister. We ask this thing in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Hey, that's